welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this special episode, though, we are doing something a little different. When we go hiking, as much as we love the experience itself, we also love to remember it. And for many of us, a big part of creating memories is taking pictures. So on this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we take a brief break from giving you trails to add to your to-do list, and instead we consider what it takes to get your best photos when you are on the trail. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. Don't forget to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com if you have ideas for future episodes. This special episode is about getting great photos while you are out hiking. If you're new to the show, let me tell you the typical format. We normally cover a different trail on each episode, including background on the location of the trail, sometimes covering the natural history, the cultural history, and even the history of the trail itself. We usually throw in a good story or two as well, plus an interview of someone who's hiked the trail to help walk us through what it takes to do it. We cover backpacking trails, where you carry everything you need, including all your food. But we also cover trekking routes, where you might stay in local inns or guest houses or hostels and be able to obtain your meals along the way. If you are interested in checking out one of our typical episodes, The full catalog from the last two and a half years is available to you on whatever podcast service you are using to listen to the show. If you are interested, for example, in Sierra Nevada wilderness backpacking in California, you might check out episodes we have covering hikes there. We also have an episode about backpacking the Grand Canyon, or another example is an episode about hiking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So lots to choose from there if you want to find a great backpacking route to try to do. If international trekking is more your style, we have episodes covering trekking routes in lots of parts of the world, such as Nepal, Japan, Peru, Australia, or even the UK, including a recent episode we did on the West Highland Way in Scotland, which my wife and I hiked this past summer. And there are many great episodes planned for the coming year, so stay tuned as well. But as I said, on this episode, we will do something a little different. And we'll take a break from the barrage of hikes that you've added to your life list to tackle a different subject. Our guest on the show today is Mike Pajoli. Mike is a photographer based in Asheville, North Carolina. He has spent the last several years photographing the Blue Ridge Mountains near where he lives. Some of his best photos of this region are now compiled in his first book, entitled Blue Ridge Dreaming. I'll put a link in the show notes for the book, but you can find it pretty much everywhere, including places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart. In episode 16 on the Foothills Trail, we covered a 77-mile trail in North and South Carolina that is in the southern foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. You might check out that episode. There's a great conversation there that I had with Nancy East, who's a pretty impressive hiker who lives in that region. The Foothills Trail is near what's called the Blue Wall, which is the southern escarpment of the Blue Ridge Mountains that drops really precipitously, something like a couple thousand feet very quickly from the Blue Ridge Mountains to the foothills below. So why don't we back up for a minute and first tackle the question, What are the Blue Ridge Mountains, where Mike does his photography? I covered this as part of episode 16 on the Foothills Trail, which I highly recommend, but I'll do a quick refresher here. So these are the mountains that John Denver called almost heaven, and Thomas Jefferson said about them, it is impossible for the emotions arising from the sublime to be felt beyond what they are here. The rapture of the spectator is really indescribable. 
The Blue Ridge Mountains are part of the Appalachian Range. They are likely a billion years old. That's billion with a B. They're one of the oldest mountain ranges on Earth and were created by uplift from plate tectonics originally. They were much higher at one time than they are today, but have been weathered by erosion over time. Though even today they contain the highest peaks in the U.S. east of the Rockies. The famous sort of blue look that they have that give them their name is from hydrocarbons released by the forest. A big part of Mike's photography is finding good hikes and places to take photos of the Blue Ridge Mountains from the Blue Ridge Parkway. So what is the Blue Ridge Parkway? And to be honest, this is something I knew nothing about before talking to Mike. The Blue Ridge Parkway is a 469-mile road through the central and southern part of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It starts by Shenandoah National Park in Virginia and goes all the way to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in North Carolina. It's really a unique road. It's the longest road planned as a single unit in the United States. And strangely, the road itself is actually a national park. Or to be more specific, it's technically a national parkway, which is an elongated national park and protects not just the road, but significant land around it as well. The Blue Ridge Parkway is administered by the National Park Service. Although it itself is part of the National Park Service, it also travels through four national forests, which are a different kind of jurisdiction. That's Jefferson, George Washington, Nantahala, and Pisgah National Forests. And there are over 360 miles of hiking trails along the parkway. The parkway was planned during the Great Depression as a federal public works project. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt got the idea after Virginia built Skyline Drive through Shenandoah Park, and he wanted to connect that area to the Great Smoky Mountains. Originally, the proposed route also went into Tennessee and actually didn't go through Asheville, North Carolina, though folks in Asheville lobbied heavily to get the route to come through Asheville. Asheville at the time was suffering heavily from the Depression, and they saw it as an opportunity for tourism, which it was. And eventually they did convince the planners and Roosevelt to shift the location planned for the route so that it went through Asheville, North Carolina. So Mike can thank those thoughtful forefathers in Asheville that the parkway is close to where he lives. Construction of the parkway began in 1937, and many sections opened when they were ready, but the route was not fully completed until 1987, when the Lynn Cove Viaduct, one of the most complicated concrete bridges ever built, was completed. So, yeah, you heard that right. From beginning to end, it took 50 years to complete the parkway. So this is the terrain that Mike Bajoli found himself in in North Carolina, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, with an easy access to the Blue Ridge Parkway, and his book Blue Ridge Dreaming, with a lot of his amazing photos of this region, came out of that exploration. So I'm excited to talk to Mike today, not just about his exploration of the Blue Ridge Mountains and his book, but also about photography itself. So why do I want to do a show on photography? Well, the simple answer is I'm not very good at it. The truth is I don't care very much about photography. At least I didn't for a long time. And I don't like to mediate my experience of the wilderness through looking at my phone and interestingly, Mike doesn't really like that either, and it's something that we talk about in the interview, which I think is an interesting discovery in talking to a photographer. But lately, I have started to think about photography more. So why is that? For one, I've been doing a lot more solo hikes, and as a result, it's more important for me to have pictures so I can tell my family and friends about what I've been up to and show them a picture or two from my trips. So it helps me document trips where I'm the only one out there experiencing it. Another reason is that phone cameras have gotten way better over the years. So now you can take very high quality pictures with your, with the camera on your phone. And I guess also I've started to see the value of having a quality photo 
as a way to preserve memories. So when the opportunity came up to talk to a professional nature photographer, I thought, why not? So in the interview, Mike and I talk about his background in photography, his experience with putting together his first book, how he likes to do his work as a photographer, and of course, some tips for us amateurs on how we can take better photos when we're out hiking. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with landscape photographer Mike Pajoli. Mike Pajoli, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, you live in the Asheville, North Carolina area, but you are not originally from there. Uh, how did you end up in that part of the world? And, you know, what was the evolution that brought you there? Yeah, that's right. So I grew up just 30 minutes north of New York City. So it's been quite a interesting path here to Asheville. Started actually after college. I went to college in, in New York and then ended up doing teaching actually in Chicago. So really fell in love with Chicago and that's actually where I fell in love with photography, taking pictures of the architecture. I loved it. And then ended up switching career paths into clinical psychology. So moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to do grad school for four years. And then as part of my program, had to do an internship year, my fifth year. Actually ended up getting placed or matched kind of similar to the, the, the medical kind of training process. Ended up getting matched at the Asheville VA hospital. So working with veterans and uh, really just fell in love with the mountains. <laughs> and that was in 2019. Since then, I've just kind of stuck around in the Blue Ridge area and uh, here to stay. That's an interesting story that you started with basically urban photography in Chicago, which of course is an amazing city for photographing architecture. There's so much of an architectural history there. Mm -hmm. And so how did that evolve? Was it really just now in Asheville, there's more of a, an opportunity to have nature photography? Or did you start evolving away from that as you went from Chicago to Cincinnati and start thinking more about landscapes and outdoor photography? It was interesting. I think part of me always felt really connected to nature, but I just kind of grew up in so close to a big city. And then Chicago too, just, just felt very familiar. Yeah, so it was actually a pretty abrupt shift. Uh, I had never really given that much time or energy to landscape photography, uh, really until 2019, really just a few years ago. It wasn't like a gradual shift. <laughs> Cincinnati is is kind of a cool, uh, it was almost like an in-between. It, it was, it's like this um, post-industrial mid-sized city uh, along the Ohio River so I did get a little bit more outdoors there. Uh, so I guess you could say that that was a little bit of a, a connection, but the Asheville downtown is pretty tiny. <laughs> so, so it really kind of forced me out there. Yeah, so, so it was pretty abrupt, pretty abrupt shift. And so how did you end up discovering the locations around Asheville that you wanted to start photographing? I mean, I know you're, you're right there at the Blue Ridge Mountains, essentially, some people might have ended up taking photographs of old houses in Asheville or something like that, right? With fall colors on the street. Mm -hmm. but you ended up in the mountains. So how did that evolve? I remember one of the first hikes I did was, I didn't even know much about the Blue Ridge Parkway. A hike I chose that it was a pretty popular hike, Graveyard Fields is what it's called. It's pretty up there, high elevation. And it's off the Blue Ridge Parkway. So I'm just driving along the parkway, following Google Maps, really, and thinking to myself, well, what is this, what is this road? And then it's like, oh, the, this Blue Ridge Parkway, and then did some research, and it's like, oh, well, oh, it's, it's a national park, it's a road, that's a national park, what, I gotta look even more into this, and so it really was just like a kind of discovery process. There's so many overlooks, so it makes it super easy just to kind of pull off and take in the view there's so many different um, angles and kind of twists and turns and tunnels and there's so much to explore just on that alone. And then 
then it just has so many trailheads uh, just off of it. And I don't know if I'll ever get to all of them, to be perfectly honest. That's how it started. So when you get to the Blue Ridge Parkway and you're starting to explore, you are already a photographer at this point in your life. So did you start seeing this new part of the country that you were exploring through the eyes of a photographer right away? Did you start thinking, how would I take pictures of this? How would I photograph this area as you were starting to get out of your car and and go to trailheads and hike up into this area? Yes. People call it the photography bug. You kind of catch it. (laughs) And once you catch it in in Chicago, I'd say is when I caught it, you really can't get rid of it. (laughs) So I did notice kind of viewing certain like overlooks and, and different waterfalls and things as like, oh, even without my camera, because I, I would go on just lots of hikes without my camera, I kind of, in the back of my head, almost be treating it like a, a scouting trip. Like, let's look for, is there potential here? Would I come back with my camera? And that's something I've actually loved about photography is it's something that has really helped me to make the most of the places that I have lived in, just to kind of get out. When I was in Chicago and, and Cincinnati, And here, I think photography took me to places I never would have gone to if I didn't have the bug. But I'll say that with some caution because you have to kind of find some balance. So I always try to balance that with just being present and really soaking in, you know, if I'm at a waterfall, and this is is hard and it's, it's still something I'm working on, but always trying to put my camera down, just soak it in, you know, take in the scene the sounds, even the smells, you know, just how it feels, the mist of the, the water, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's a balance I'm still, still working on. That is really well put, Mike, because that is something I have struggled with forever on all of my hikes and my backpacking trips that I do is I really want to be present for the experience and enjoy it and not always be looking at it through my phone's camera. Mm-hmm. But there is that temptation to say, well, I really got to get a shot of this particular location or this moment. And so it is always a struggle. And I think that just knowing that that's a struggle is, is probably, in my book, enough to find that balance. Because some people don't even think twice about it and never mm. put the phone down and never, or the camera, and are always trying to see the world through the, that lens. And at the end of the day, you know, I want to have enough pictures to remember the trip for me because I'm not trying to produce you know, professional photography like you are, but I also want to have the experience of the trip and it does sort of get in the way of it, right? At, at times. And so that's a, I think that's a pretty insightful way to think about what you're doing. Hmm. So thinking about that Blue Ridge Parkway and it's a 469 mile auto route that has a lot of things to see, I'm sure. Are there particular places along it that people shouldn't miss to get out of their car and take a look? Or in addition to that, maybe some hikes along that route that are your favorite? Yeah. Oh gosh. Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, well, I'll just kind of plug one of my favorite overlooks is the Looking Glass Rock Overlook. It's in the Pisgah Forest section. And it's like this clearing of a, this view of, of Looking Glass Rock, which is this I'm no geologist, but been learning. They have like these informational signs there, but mm-hmm. uh, I just find it so fascinating. It's called a pluton. I think I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but it's this rock of ancient remnants of a volcanic eruption. And over like all these years, the other mountain tops have kind of eroded around it. But because it's, I guess it's a little bit harder or resistant to erosion, it's just kind of standing out. So I think that's just so cool. The way the light hits it especially when you get a little frost on it and some ice is melting and kind of following off the sides or if you get some fog around it. So that's my favorite. Definitely don't want to miss that one. What about a hike or two? Because that one is that that's basically something where you can pull off the road and take a look. Yes. So here's why I love it so much because you could also, uh, this is not off the parkway, but you can kind of go off of it a little bit. And you can also hike up to the top of, of Looking Glass Rock. So it's a pretty steep hike, I must say. Very re- rewarding once you get up there. There's another hike off the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's to a little old fire tower called Frying Pan Tower. So I definitely recommend that because it's not too long of a hike. And you can 
walk up this fire tower and you get this really awesome view of just kind of bird's eye view. If you take a picture from it, it looks like almost people might say like, oh, did you have a drone? So, but drones are illegal on the parkway. So it's a nice little sidestep there. Are the fire towers in this area still manned? Are there people actually up there in the fire towers when you were there? Or are these sort of out of service now because of technology? I think they're out of service. The The few that I've been to, the actual opening to the top part where it's enclosed is boarded up and locked up. All right. And so you spent the last few years in, in North Carolina. You've explored a lot of the Blue Ridge Parkway. And how did that translate into eventually the idea of a book, of your photography of this area? It's been a process. So it kind of started when I was in Chicago. So the publisher of the book, Trope Publishing, I think they do some pretty cool projects. So one of the projects they did was put a a photo book of Chicago pictures from just a couple dozen photographers and almost made it this collaborative photo project, which I thought was really great. So I contributed to that book and really liked the work and made some connections with, with folks there. And then they, um, they did a New York City book. I think they're still working on it, and I've contributed to that. So started with those urban pictures. But then when I moved to, to Asheville, I really challenged myself to just stick with landscape mountain photography. There's a certain point on Instagram or other sites where it's just a clean break <laughs> where it goes from city to, to landscape. One of the guys I'm pretty close with at Trope, his name is Sam. He's like, Mike, what's going on here? Is this, this some experiment? You're the city guy. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, I'm just going to stick with it and see what happens. And I stuck with it. And maybe six to eight months later, maybe even longer than that, he, he reached back out to me and said, Mike, you know, you're, you're sticking with it. What do you think about a book, a Blue Ridge book? You know, it looks like we have plenty of content that we, we can kind of work with. I said, oh, you know, <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm just doing my own thing and kind of followed up again. And I said, you know, let's, let's just go for it. So that's kind of how it happened. Just having built a, a good relationship with Trope and sticking to this new kind of experiment that was landscape photography. So the book is called Blue Ridge Dreaming. Yes. Uh-huh. And when is it coming out? So it's, it'll be coming out uh, sometime in October this, this year, which is perfect timing because it's heavy on the fall colors. I wanted to ask you about that because I saw the electronic advanced copy and the photos. I mean, from an amateur perspective, I don't have a lot of credibility in telling you anything about your photography, but to me, they looked amazing. Thank you. But the thing that I really noticed was the way you captured the seasons and the book itself is actually organized by season. Mm-hmm. In the time that you've been photographing landscapes in the last few years, how have you found that the seasons impact the way your photos turn out and sort of what you're able to capture? It's tricky. They do a lot, actually. As you'll see, uh, or as you have seen in the book, the uh, the color palette, my, you know, I lean towards a, a color palette that kind of balances the complementary colors like warm, brighter oranges and darker blue tones. It's trying to strike that color balance in each of the pictures. So autumn lends itself perfectly to that with just the the changing colors. And then a lot of times, you know, with landscape, I've noticed, for example, you can get the dark side of a a mountain, you know, maybe in the background that that lends itself really well to just kind of a, a darker kind of blue tone in the background. And then, you know, if I get something, you know, like the light hitting some trees in the middle of fall, uh, I get that pop of orange or those, you know, reddish oranges or orangey yellows. So autumn is just, it's kind of perfect for that. And I will say it's, it's been more of a challenge to kind of stick with, with that theme, especially in the summer because uh, one of the things that really stood out to me so much when I moved here was just everything is so lush. It's so much green <laughs> in the summer. And that's been really hard for me to edit. And whilst trying to stay, stay true to kind of my, my color palette. So you'll see like a few greens, you know, darker greens make their way in there. So those green tones, but usually when I'm editing them, I'll kind of mute them out. 
that's been interesting. It's been a challenge. Usually I'll, I'll try and find like wildflowers, which there are plenty of around here that lean more, you know, reddish, pinkish, orange to kind of pop in for those summer photos. That's an interesting problem to have that there's just too much green to make anything stand out. <laughs> I never thought about that, but yeah, yeah. I could see that being an issue. We'll talk in a few minutes, I think, about some advice you might have for others on how to take good nature photography, good landscape photography. But it sounds like one thing to be thinking about is to have some contrast in the colors. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're in person and you're looking over a green valley, it may just be awe-inspiring. But in a photo, it's just going to look like a big swath of green. Yeah. If you don't have maybe a granite peak sticking out somewhere or wildflowers somewhere or something to provide some some depth and some contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I'll definitely talk about some, some ways to get around that. And so how did you select the photos for the book? Or is this pretty much the editor doing all of that? Or were you, did you have a lot of input into which photos ended up ultimately in the book? Yeah, it was started out with just with a ton, like over a hundred options, my favorites that I gave to the editor. And then there was actually a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of intentionality that, that we put into it. And something I really appreciated about Trope's approach is they, they really gave me like a sense of, you know, this is your book, so just let us know what you want. And they, they gave me, you know, some really good guidance too, just which I think is really important, you know, that objective kind of eye as well, or just some good feedback. So really the process was, it's heavy on the fog. You'll see a lot of like cloud inversions, things like that. It's heavy on warm light. So photos that were taken closer to sunrise and sunset. So you, you see a lot of that. So really took it literally with Blue Ridge dreaming, like the, the dreamier, the better. <laughs> and what better than some nice uh, warm light and, and some fog and clouds and the effects that they have when you're when you're shooting like these layers and layers of, of the mountains and or the twists of the the Blue Ridge Parkway. So so really did a lot of work, a lot of back and forth on staying true to that theme. One of the things that the book does is match your photos with quotes that are sort of appropriate for the scene that's captured. And I know that that's something that the editor had a lot of input into, but now that you've seen the sort of final proof of the book, are there particular matched quotes? Is there one that stands out for you that seemed particularly interesting or, or captured in a special way what you were photographing? I think they did a really nice job of balancing, you know, they took poetry from just even like local poets and artists and writers from just the, the Blue Ridge area mixed with some other like, I think there's like a Thomas Jefferson quote in there. But uh, one of the ones I like, it's a picture of, it's a snowy kind of scene that I took. This was in a Water Rock Knob, which is one of my favorite places to go to, too, uh, off the parkway. But it had snowed. It was like late November, and the sun was kind of coming through. And I was going on a hike with my partner and asked her to kind of stand somewhere and pose. So it's like she's this kind of lone figure um, surrounded by these snowy trees are kind of glowing. And so the quote next to it is, uh, it's by Rachel Carson says, there's something infinitely healing in the repeated refrains of nature, the assurance that dawn comes after night and spring after winter. So uh, I think it, it, you know, it does a really nice job of kind of capturing, it's kind of a somber kind of tone or mood to the, the photo, but there's also a, I don't know, like kind of a, a warm glow that kind of getting caught in the snowy trees that gives us like sense of, Oh, there's, there's some, there's some hope here. There's, there's some light. So it's one of my favorite pictures. And I thought it was just a great quote. Just kind of goes really well with it. Yeah, that's a good one. And it has, like you said, it has a sort of uh, a deeper, it's multifaceted and that's what makes something more interesting, right? If you can see it in different ways at the same time. So that's great. Mm -hmm. So what is the most beautiful scene that you have seen in the Blue Ridge Mountains that you were able to capture in a photo? That's a really hard question. There, there have been so many. So 
I went uh, a couple of years ago, went to Linville Gorge, which is known as the, the Grand Canyon of the South. I love that place. I could shoot there, hike there like for weeks and, and it's just so beautiful. But I uh, went there with a friend up to Hawksbill Mountain for sunrise. This was uh, mid-June and a big challenge is always, you can never predict how good a sunrise is going to be. You know, you can look at the weather forecasts and all that, but you never know until you're there at the time. So it's always a gamble. Went up, uh, so it was about a two-hour drive and then like maybe less than an hour hike hike up, but we both woke up at like 3.30 <laughs> and went. But when we got up there, this the sky was just probably the most amazing sunrise I, I think I've ever seen. Reds, purples, oranges, pinks, all just right in front of me. That's something I'll never forget, and I don't think I could ever replicate that. So that's definitely up there. But you were able to capture it pretty well. It sounds, were you able to get a photo that captured it as best as you think you could? I sure hope so. It's always, <laughs> it's always the challenge. It's, you know, you look at this amazing <laughs> scene and you're like, I, I hope I do this justice. So there is a picture of it in the book. I want to say it's going to be page 12, perhaps. It's a, it's a horizontal and you can kind of see in the foreground the, the real, like they almost look like shards of rock at the top of Hawksbill in the foreground. And then this beautiful, right, like moments after the sun had just risen. So yeah, that's, that's in the book. I, I really hope I did it justice, but it's, it's something I'll never forget. Were you thinking of another one you wanted to describe too, or was that the one that comes to mind? There's one which is actually the cover. So the cover of the book, and there's also a, a bigger version of it inside the book, but it's of this kind of single cabin um, nestled in the woods, just on its own. And that uh, was taken from the parkway. I forget if it's right before or after uh, Crabtree Falls, which is a pretty well-known uh, waterfall, which you can also hike to from the parkway. I was actually taking pictures of Crabtree Falls that morning. Uh, it was like mid-October last year. And it was pretty cloudy. And I didn't really have much of a hope other than just cloudy conditions actually can be good when shooting a waterfall. You don't get that harsh light. So I was driving back, driving back home on the parkway. And I looked over and I, I saw the, the sky starting to part. And I saw this little cabin. So basically, the, the cover of the book was never supposed to happen. Like I, was, I could literally have just kept driving. And I actually, I did. <laughs> I did keep driving. And then I, I hit a tunnel and actually got out to, to take pictures of the tunnel. But part of me was like, just go back and see, see what's up with that cabin. And I, I'm so glad I did. I, I, I turned back and the sky had kind of opened up just enough, but there was this cloud inversion that, that was just misty, like kind of transparent enough to kind of see through it. And then the colors uh, of the, the trees and the leaves were just peak. So everything just kind of came together at once. And I couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I just kept shooting, like clicking the shutter just to make sure. I was like, I got to get something like, almost frantically. But that definitely is, is up there too. I think something like a cabin can be powerful because it adds a whole different element, which is the human element and puts it right into the photograph, right? So it can add loneliness or, you know, who knows what, but it can add all the emotions that people have by imagining now a life or lives in that scene in a way that a scene that's only nature may not convey. Yeah, I totally agree. There's not a person in that photo, but it almost kind of leaves you wondering, like, who's in there? It kind of evokes this nostalgia for me, like someone's in there staying nice and cozy and warm, uh, nestled in into the, you know, the mountains, the fog, the changing leaves, but they're just kind of enjoying their time, whoever's in there. Maybe that's a good segue to talking about your process a little bit and sort of how you think about photography and some advice you might have. So first, 
how do you decide where to go? Are you basically just trying to cover as much ground as you can, or do you have a sort of method to the madness in trying to get a good shot? One of the best ways is, I'm a big believer in just no man is an island. So Instagram has, from the very beginning, you know, has, has been a great way to connect with, with really cool, amazing creators and photographers. And so just tried to really connect with as many as I could um, in the area. And being able to like scroll through and see what they're shooting is really one, I'd say like my, one of my biggest inspirations because I see like, oh, that's an awesome picture where they take that. People love being asked, not in the comments, but like, you know, a nice message that's personal and respectful and just asking like, where was this? And, and even like, I'd love to like go there sometime if, if you're ever shooting again. But, um, so there is a big social component to it and thank goodness for the Instagram save features. I save so many pictures. Oh, this is going in the North Carolina or the Asheville folder. <laughs> when it comes to the weekend, I try to get at least a, a sunrise in every weekend. That's been a little difficult in the past year or so. I've started my practice, my psychology practice, but I still try to do it. I'll pull my my saved pictures up. I'll maybe do a little, um, you know, Googling. What's this overlook? Can you get this shot from this overlook? Or can I do this hike reasonably? you know, before the sun comes up and then I'll just pick it. So a lot of times it might be the night before that I just decide like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> it's a slow process gathering the inspiration and ooh, that's on the bucket list. That shot or that, that spot is on the bucket list. And then when it's just feasible, it's usually it's the night before or a couple nights before that I decide, all right, this is happening. This is where I'm going this weekend. You've mentioned sunrises a few times, and I think most people, even even amateurs like me, know that it seems like sunrises, sunsets, morning light, evening light are probably the best times for shots. Is that hold true for you, or are there shots you can get at other times that are still going to be very good? Yeah, I'd say it's really hard to work with you know that overhead, that light like midday. That's just really harsh, kind of beaten down, casting those pretty harsh shadows and I found it really hard to work with so the more I shoot the less I take my camera out during the day I kind of treat the daylight as time to hike and scout places <laughs> and then I'll come back for sunrise or sunset so I have really been limiting a lot of my time to those times of, of morning and evening I did mention earlier on a nice cloudy day, I have been just becoming a lot more appreciative of that nice diffused light, especially for like a waterfall or after a storm or after a rain or even when it's like raining. Sometimes that gray, that grayness can be really nice and be a whole nother mood to the photo. So I'll try to capitalize on that when, you know, if, if I am shooting during the, the middle of the day. Are there other things besides time of day or cloudy versus not cloudy that are important to you in getting a great photo? I am still trying to figure this out. <laughs> I'm no weather forecaster, but you know, trying to figure out like when certain times of year when when you're more likely to get cloud inversions in the morning. I know like it has to do with dew point and matching with the temperature, things like that perhaps, but those early summer months, I found a lot of good success there. And then that kind of early fall, when those temperatures are changing again. So those times of year, I'll, I'll really try to, to go out. Basically, I'm chasing those cloud inversions when I can. So that's another one. So that's to get the sort of misty layer look that you can get in the Blue Ridge Mountains? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. For the gear geeks out there, what kind of camera do you use? I have a Canon 5D Mark III, which I love. It's great. I, I love the feel of it too. And then my go-to lens is a Sigma Art 24 to 70 millimeter 2.8 aperture. And I love that thing. Like I take that with me everywhere because it's so versatile. So you can kind of zoom in just enough 
but then zoom back out for a nice wide shot. So it has a lot of uh, ability to do different things with just that one lens. Yes. So that's really nice because I could just kind of like, if I see something, zoom in a little bit, you know, to get some layers. But then if I see like a, a wider scene, I don't have to stop and drop everything I'm doing just to change the lens. All right. Now let's get away for a moment from the professional gear and talk about the rest of us out here who are taking photos with our phones, with our mobile phones, when we go hiking. What advice do you have for us amateurs out there who are using mobile phones to take better photos? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's so important because phones, they're so powerful. There's so much you can do. And I didn't mention this, but that's how I started photography. So I was you know, commuting on the L in Chicago and would just take my phone out and just snap pictures. And, you know, it was like a, a dinky iPhone 4S or something. <laughs> but still, I mean, you could you get really good good stuff. So I'm a huge proponent of anyone can take a great picture with your phone. I think there's that quote, the, the best camera you have is the one that's with you or something like that. I'm great at butchering quotes, but I think I got the spirit of it. So yeah, I'd say one of the nice things is the phone will kind of take care of all the, the exposure for you, and which is really nice. You don't have to kind of worry about that. Um, so you can kind of just focus on the composition. So I'd say the big thing with the phone is really get an idea of what kind of composition you want and it's also nice because you know you can kind of see on the phone screen you know exactly what you're going to get there's like no guesswork so I always say slow down <laughs> take as many photos as you want just to kind of you know get it right whatever vision you might have and it, I think it really comes down to leveling the playing field here because the phone has so much capability is try different compositions I'd say the most kind of basic, if you want to start, is starting out with like the rule of thirds. This could work for even either a vertical or a horizontal photo. Imagine you kind of cut the, the screen into three equal parts. So maybe you want to have the left third, you know, a flower in the forefront. And then, so once you have that locked in, you can click for iPhone users. I have an iPhone kind of click, okay, that's that's where I want to focus. So let the camera focus. And then um, before you take the picture, play around with the angle and pay attention to maybe what's in the, the background of the right third section. Maybe you want to get like kind of a blurred, a bokeh effect of, you know, a mountaintop or maybe the road if it's off, off of the parkway or uh, looking glass rock. <laughs> So really focus on what kind of composition, what do I want to fit into, into this frame? And how can I be as mindful as possible with that and have some fun with it? A lot of us, when we go backpacking or hiking, we're with friends or we are with family and we're going to want to include them in the photo. Mm -hmm. Any advice for composition when you have a person that you need to include in the shot? <laughs> That's a good question. I'd say it depends on what, what they want. If they want just uh, straight up like them with something in the background, go for it. If, if you want to get, you know, something epic, you can look for, you know, a little ledge. You know, it's safe, of course, for them to kind of stand off and look out at. And you can apply the rule of thirds there. You know, if, if you want to add a little bit of a sense of adventure or scale, even kind of zoom back out so you get more, you can kind of get them in one third of the picture and then them looking out to, you know, a valley, you know, or, or this cool scene. Them looking out will actually draw your eye toward that part of the scene when you have the photo, right? Like there, mm -hmm. you will see where they're looking and it will cause you to look to that spot as well. Exactly. Yeah. And even that, even if they're wearing like, you know, a hat, you know, with a, with a bill, even that small detail of them looking that way, that pointing towards that view um, is, is going to bring the eye even more. So even those, being mindful of even those small things can be really powerful, make a big difference. One of the things that 
we've talked about is how it's good to take photos at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And I, I really like to do that. I usually will take photos while everyone else is still asleep in camp. So I'll spend the morning going around the lake if we're camped at a lake and trying to find good shots. Mm-hmm. But the reality is a lot of the time we are hiking, particularly out here in the West where there's a lot of sunny days and not a lot of cloud cover. Mm. We often are hiking with the sun overhead and we still want to take pictures of the things we're seeing. Any thoughts for sort of the best way to minimize the the bad photos you might get from that kind of situation? That's a great point because honestly, I'm still trying to figure that out. One thing I have found to be useful is using the foreground to almost like frame the subject. So, so what I mean by that is don't be afraid to, you know, people will see me like on off a trail, like sticking my hand in a tree or a bush and they're like, okay, what on earth is, is that guy doing? But if you look, you can kind of see, um, if you can try to get, you know, the bush leaves to go around the, the frame. So it's almost acting as a natural border. Okay. And then, you know, whatever your subject is kind of point it there. So like I'm thinking, for example, I just went to, it's called Short Off Mountain, which is in Linville Gorge. And you can kind of from the top of the mountain see this lake. I forget the name of the lake. Or, or even Hawksville, you know, in also in Linville Gorge, I used these pine tree stems and pine cones all coming around the edge of the, the frame. And right in the center was the the peak of Table Rock, which is across the the gorge. So I hope I'm describing it well enough. But but what it does is it kind of eliminates that harsh light. You don't see as much of that harsh light coming in because the the border kind of subtracts it for you. Yeah. And then you just click on where you want your camera to focus, which is right in the center. It'll be hard to tell what time of day it is. That is pretty helpful. And we were talking also a minute ago about placing people in shots. And I always have the question of, do I want them right up close to me where I really get the person or do I want them sort of in the scene? And is that really just a matter of what you're trying to capture? Or do you think there's really a sort of sweet spot for where to put a person in a shot? It's hard. If someone just wants a, a straight up portrait <laughs> to document, then, yeah. you know, that's that's pretty straightforward. But I, I'd say you can get creative. Like sometimes there will be like rocks that you can stand on a long path, for example. And maybe you can stand up on that and get them kind of walking down the trail so that you see them on in the foreground kind of walking towards maybe this, you know, this cool converging perspective of the trail leading the eye into the woods or something. So again, bringing in that, maybe that sense of adventure. I'm also, I'm a big fan of giving photos like a sense of scale. I was at Crabtree Falls um, yesterday, actually, with a, a really good friend. And so I stood really kind of far back and I asked my friend to go like really close to the, this waterfall. It's, it's this huge, I think it's like an 80-foot waterfall. Don't quote me on that, but it's pretty tall. And so I had him just stand at the base of the waterfall so you could literally see. He looks like this little ant looking up at this huge waterfall. And so that sense of scale can really make for a powerful image as well. So those are some things you could, you know, I'd, I'd always say, give a try. Okay. That sounds like a good idea. And I think that's a good one when the focus is really providing insight into what that waterfall is, right? Like it's not really about a portrait at that point, right? It's yeah. more about <laughs> what are we seeing here and how do we capture that? I think water is difficult. I found that taking pictures of rivers or creeks or waterfalls is very hard to see scale. And you're looking at the picture later, you realize it just looks like a you know, just a little tiny <laughs> creek. It doesn't look like much, even if it was a roaring river when you were there. Right. Um, so that that is very hard to capture. And so uh, certainly having a person in the shot can help with that. Mm-hmm. Any other ideas for the amateur photographer who's out there with their phone that we haven't talked about? I think that some of the best advice I can give is just if you really want to capture the beauty of, of what you're seeing, don't be afraid to 
put the phone down for a little bit first and just take the scene in. I've been just becoming more, well, I do a lot of mindfulness in, in my clinical practice. And I think it's so fitting for photography and anyone can practice it. So before just kind of rushing to, to take a picture, it's that difference, I think, between like looking for a photo versus letting the photo kind of find you and take your time and let whatever you find beautiful just kind of hit you and don't be afraid to, to take a bunch of pictures of it. That's good advice. I have one more question, which is kind of a technical one with phones, which is they have settings on phones that might be for mountain scenes or certain kind. There's these little buttons on some of the phones where you basically can adjust an automatic adjustment. Do you think those kinds of settings are worth toying with for the typical person? Or is it better just to leave the default settings on your phone and clean it up later when you are at home? Mm, Yeah, people might disagree with me, but Something about those preset modes just kind of makes me cringe a little bit. I don't know why, but I personally would would not really use those. I think if someone's curious, I'd say maybe turn it into an experiment. So try with that mode and then try the same shot with no mode, just free-forming it and try your own focus. Maybe you can adjust the lighting. Try that on your own. So I personally would stay away from it, but you know I don't want to discourage anyone. And I'd say, if anything, just check it out for yourself. Mike, this has been really helpful. And I really appreciate the time you've been taking to tell us about your work and about some advice for us amateur photographers out there. Um, but before you go, I've got a few wrap-up questions for you. Sure. And so I was going to ask you, what is one piece of gear you don't leave home without? But I think it's probably your camera and your lens. So I'm going to change the question on you last minute here. Is there anything besides your camera and your lens that you like to have every time you go out, particularly if you're hiking? Is there something in particular you always have with you? I love coffee and I I know you're supposed to bring water, which I do, (laughs) but I always bring some iced coffee in like a thermos or something. You'll always catch me sipping iced coffee. Perfect. That is such a better answer than your lens. (laughs) 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 And so the area that you live in is also known for some pretty changeable weather, I think. I mean, where the weather can impact what you're doing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Have you run into some pretty bad weather out there? And is there any time in particular that stands out that you experienced pretty bad weather while you were hiking to do some photography? And and how did you deal with that? Yeah. So early on, and I'll, I'll, I'll give some, some tips for, for people to not get into this position. <laughs> so again, Linville Gorge, I feel like I'm a broken record. I keep talking about it because I love that place. But it was early July, which there are just lots of you know pop-up thunderstorms. So I went up there, Hawksville Mountain, once again. And there's this really cool cloud in the distance, dark stormy looking, ominous, really lends itself well to a nice ominous picture. But it, I noticed it kept getting bigger and it kept coming closer. <laughs> I mean, this was within maybe less than a half an hour. And I was so caught up in taking pictures that I, I didn't even think to like head back down or seek cover. But like that, the, the rain just, just started pouring and it was a true thunderstorm, which was actually kind of scary. I was right in it. So the thunder was really loud. The, the lightning was just popping off left and right. So it was pretty scary. Thankfully, there's, there are all these kind of craggy rocks up there. So I literally crawled into one, like underneath one. And thankfully, it, you know, it, was, it was safe enough. It kept me and my gear dry enough. But it lasted for about an hour. And so I was just there, stuck. So what I learned from that is there's a website <laughs> called mountainforecast.com. And so if you're ever going to go, especially in the summer, to any kind of like higher elevation, check out Mountain Forecast. And if the peak you're going to isn't there, try to find one nearby. So they have very elevation-specific forecasts and if there's even a chance of a thunderstorm, there'll be like a lightning icon. So definitely want to pay attention to that. Yeah, that's good advice. I've definitely run into some storms I hadn't planned on being stuck in before as well. And it's no fun at times. 
If you were to take photos of a new and different area besides the Blue Ridge Mountains, where would you want to go to take photos of nature and, and landscapes? I would love, I, I have never been to uh, the Pacific Northwest and I, you know, I just see so many beautiful photos from there. So I'd love to visit Mount Rainier. Is that how you pronounce it? Mount Rainier. Yeah. Yeah. Mount Rainier National Park. Uh, so just really anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, I'd, I'd love to to get out to. It's it's definitely a, a dream of mine. So I hope it happens soon. Maybe that'll be your next book. May- <laughs> yeah, maybe. Pacific Northwest Dreaming or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Now, I know that you are primarily a, a day hiker, but on this podcast, we talk a lot about backpacking and trekking. Is that something you'd ever be... Th- you'd ever be willing to try it to, to get out there where you'd stay out there for multiple days at a time. And if it's something you'd consider, where would you want to go? Yeah. Um, I feel like just being a city guy for most of my life, I've definitely been easing myself into that kind of life. I did, um, a couple nights of glamping around here, which is, <laughs> I would consider maybe like a nice, nice starter. yeah, a nice starter into that. But I was so close to the Appalachian Trail, so I would love to, you know, I could see myself doing some part of the Appalachian Trail and, and maybe starting off with just a night and then seeing how that goes and then working my way from there. So if and when I, I do that, I'd want to start here on, on the Appalachian Trail. That sounds like a good idea. If you do it, let me know. I'm curious to hear how it goes for you. Yeah, for sure. I, I will. So thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Where can people find you on social media, like Instagram and other places where they can see your work or or to get in touch? Yeah, so the best way right now is on Instagram. So if you go to Instagram and uh, put in the, the username MP, the comeback kid with one K, because two Ks exceeds the character limit. <laughs> that is uh, the best way if you want kind of check out the work. And um, there's a link also that takes you to a bunch of other places, like where you can get the book, where you can get some prints, or just even some other like larger scale photos from my Chicago and New York City and Cincinnati days. So I'd say that's that's the e- easiest place to start. Great. Mike Pajoli, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeremy. This was a a great time, and thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mike Pajoli for coming on the show. I hope we've inspired you to take some great photos on the trail. Some of you do send photos to me from time to time on hikes you've been doing, which I love to see. So I hope that this episode has inspired you and helped you to take even more memorable photos so that you can send them to me to see of all your great hikes. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. All right, next time on Trails Worth Hiking. I previewed our next episode once before on the last episode before this special episode, but I will preview it again here. If none of the trails we've covered on this show are challenging enough for you, we've got an episode coming for you. This trail covers 400 miles of rough and wild terrain, some of which is trail, but other parts are just a route that only aspires to be a trail. The trail covers a vast array of different features, including mountaintops, deep redwood forest, canyons, gorges, river crossings, grasslands, oak savanna, and even beaches. For the vast majority of this hike, you'll see almost no one, despite that you are hiking between two major metropolitan areas in the most populated state of the United States. Our next adventure is on the Condor Trail in the Los Padres National Forest in California. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, don't hesitate to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.